considering Jesus is a call to study and to meditation, it's a call to give yourself to the Word. Considering Jesus is a call to faithfulness to the congregation of believers. Considering Jesus is a call to evangelism, to mercy, to justice. Considering Jesus is a call to fellowship. Considering Jesus is a call to worship. And so as we go through Hebrews and we talk about considering Jesus, it's much bigger than just, I sit back and I think about it once in a while. But it's a call to action. So there's four ways, four applications I just want to make that this text gives us here in Hebrews chapter 4 of how we can consider Jesus. And in doing so, how we can take seriously these warnings of watching and guarding and striving. Actually, the first one I'm going to go back to Hebrews 3 for. And the rest will be out of Hebrews chapter 4. The first means is community. Considering Jesus together. Community, considering Jesus together. If you've gone through any of our material, you'll have seen us go to this passage for this specific idea. But it's worth emphasizing once again. Hebrews chapter 3, let's read verses 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You read it, and I think the exhortation, you quickly realize it, it, it goes beyond just simply this moment of preaching that we share. It goes beyond just these, these few minutes, an hour maybe that we spend together singing and looking at the Word. Look, there's two keys in there, in, right in verse 13. Exhort one another every day. First, the idea of every day. This is an ongoing daily practice in our lives. It's not for an hour on Sunday and that's it. And then the idea of one another. It's not a call to just me to you or just Adam to you. It's a call to you to one another. Exhort one another. It's a call to grow and persevere in community. That indeed our sanctification and our perseverance is a community project. No matter kind of how you're geared as a person. Some people are more, they, they want to be out there and always with people and always having a good time. Some people are just more introverted and they, they prefer to keep to themselves. There's not an option for like that lone wolf Christian or that you're going to make it to the finish line in complete isolation. That's not the way that God sets it up. He has set it up in order that we encourage, we exhort one another every day in order that we all might enter the rest. How does that happen? Some real easy applications. Community life group, one-on-one discipleship, Redeemer roots, men's prayer, different ways that way. Shooting an email to somebody, 
giving someone a phone call. When you look at someone and you can tell in their life that discouragement is mounting up, or you can see, man, there are things in their life that they treasure and value so much more than Christ right now. That we would be bold enough and courageous enough to exhort one another. When you see someone's hurting, that you would take the time and have the care and consideration and inconvenience yourself enough to invest in their lives. One of the means of making it to the end is one another. You need others and they need you. There's no one who can dismiss themselves from this call, as in, that's just not me. That's not who I am. The call is that we need one another to enter the rest. You think, how much more Christ is central in that? If faith were just like a, a vaccination, you know, and you, okay, I get my vaccination, I'm inoculated, now I'm good to go. You just kind of sail through. Are you, like, throughout your life remembering that day of your inoculation and making much of the medicine, the drug, whatever, that inoculated you? No, you're just kind of sailing through life, you took care of it, and on you go. Faith is set up as a daily community endeavor journey and struggle and battle so that every day together we're making much of Jesus Christ. Every day we're reminding one another that he is our treasure, that he is our joy. Every day we're pointing one another to that so that Christ really is central. Not just we say we're Christ-centered, but he really is central in our conversation, in our fellowship in our pursuit together because it's a day-by-day journey and struggle and joy. Consider Christ in community. I would just pause before I go into my second point and just, I would put a plug in to invest in other people's lives. If you've been here at Redeemer for a while, I know there could be a tendency, we do our best to connect with people and invest in lives. And sometimes it feels like we just, we have, someone gets left out. And there could be a tendency to think like, no one's investing in me, no one's building relationships with me. Be proactive in it. Invest in someone else's life. Build relationships. For some people it can be just as, as simple as going to community life group. Dropping off a meal when someone has a child. Just sending that email that you feel prompted to do, but you just don't take the time to do it. It's a community project. The second means is the word. Considering Jesus as revealed in Scripture. Considering Jesus together, and now considering Jesus as revealed in Scripture. I know that these are going to be earth-shattering to you and that it's something you've never heard of before. You probably could go through this text and pick them out. But I would say we so often, as churches, as individuals, we overlook the ordinary means and the simple things that God gives us for perseverance and for knowing his will for our lives. And we want something really unique and really special. And we don't give ourselves to the word. We don't 
we're not that faithful investing in one another, but we just want to know, I need that. I want, what is that one unique thing? As we start a new year, let's reemphasize these means, ordinary means that God lays out for us and holding fast and pursuing Christ. Community. Second is the word. Hebrews 4, 11 through 13. A familiar passage. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. All right. This is a small group. I'm going to get some interaction today. It feels kind of like that setting, all right? Don't leave me hanging. Um, Word of God is living and active. What does that communicate about God's Word? It is living and active. It's relevant. I can roll with that one if that's all there is, but anything else? It, It isn't dead. It isn't stale. It doesn't need updated and made, you know, to be more, you know, it just doesn't relate to me anymore. That's a a major battle in the church, is throwing out doctrine as archaic. Let's update it. You know, it's just dead. It's just stale. If you really want to reach people, you need to give them something that's more palatable, something that's more relevant. I'm not saying that we don't work to make the scripture understandable and relevant to people. But it's alive. It's active. It has the idea of of it being living and working in the sense that it's never going to die. It will accomplish its purpose. It always will accomplish its intended purpose. It's living. It's active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. What do we learn about the word through that phrase? Sharper than any two-edged sword. Yeah, there is, there is precision and distinction. Convicting. Yeah. There's no compromising. There's no, there's no dull spot in the word either. It's not like you hit it with one end and it's kind of blunt and dull. And a couple passages here are, are sharp and piercing. The word of God as a whole moves with precision, with truth, with authority sharper than any two-edged sword in that it, it cuts, it convicts. Clear to the soul and spirits, to, to, to soul and spirit, joints and marrow, that idea, um, looking in verse 12, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. A lot is written in that people kind of get caught up exactly in soul, spirit, joints and marrow. It just has the idea that there is no place too deep, too covered, too hard that the word of God can't penetrate it and pierce it according to God's purpose. Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. How does that speak to God's word? Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Yeah. 
to our inmost thoughts. It's not, it doesn't just deal with, as we kind of started out, with a, just like a, a list of rules and regulations and that the word, we can kind of fool the word that, hey, I've kept these six things. It looks at the heart's desire. What do you treasure? What do you love? When you put all of this together and then think where we start in Hebrews 3, that none of us are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Because of the deceitfulness of sin, we need this sort of sharp, precise, powerful, active word. Because sin doesn't just show up as ugly and hurtful. It shows up and it promises success. It promises satisfaction. It shows up and it shows you an easy way out of trouble and an easy way out of a relationship. It, it, it coats itself and it presents itself as something that is attractive, something that's not going to have that big of consequences. And what the word does is it rips that mask off of sin, off of that deceitfulness and exposes it for what it is. It exposes a loose tongue, and it exposes a mind that goes where it shouldn't, and it exposes your lack of commitment to relationships. The Word of God exposes it for the ugliness that it truly is, for where it's going to lead you, for the deadly consequences that actually exist. Because the deceitfulness of sin... The illustration Adam used, well, probably a couple months ago now, of you're out in the ocean and you feel like you're standing in place and before you know it, you've drifted way down. The Word of God exposes that. It, it rips it open and shows that, hey, you're moving in a bad direction and it's not okay. You can't just sugarcoat it. It shows the ugliness of sin. We know this about the Word of God, but yet we still struggle to give ourselves to it, don't we? You know, we still struggle to get up that few extra 20 minutes because it's just, uh, is it really worth it? You know, give yourself to the Word of God. It's the means that God gives us to a means He gives us uses in our lives to perfect our faith, to help us enter the rest. So we consider community, consider the word. Now we look at our Savior, considering Jesus as sinless and sympathetic. Hebrews 4, 14 and 15, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Verse 14, we kind of make a transition here, and verse 14 will lead us into, I'm sure where Adam will take us in chapter 5, and as we look more closely at Jesus as a high priest. And it helps us to understand Christ as we, we make these categories and these roles to understand Christ. So we understand him as our high priest. Now he is a greater high priest than Aaron and how Melchizedek comes in to play. And Adam knows 
everything about Melchizedek, so you can just ask him. He can take care of that for you. But we look at Jesus Christ, but the part I want to emphasize today is as sympathetic and as sinless. So in, in verse 14, we see that Jesus is alive. He has passed through the heavens, that he is now with the Father in heaven. He is the Son of God. He is God. He is alive. He has authority. And then verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. C.S. Lewis writing, either he heard, a, I'm not I'm sure if he heard a real objection or he just imagined this objection and then answered it. But the idea that Jesus, because he is God-man, he doesn't really know temptation. Because he didn't sin, he doesn't really know the struggles that we go through. And C.S. Lewis answers this objection. He says, a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation really means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. He is the only complete realist. How does that help us in persevering in our faith, knowing that Jesus is sympathetic? How is that a means for our perseverance, knowing that we have a sympathetic Savior? Yeah, absolutely. Do you ever really think of that, that Jesus has sympathy for you? You ever, you can kind of get a picture of, I don't know, or I can anyways, of it, it, you know, as judge he's a bit, it can be kind of hard and cool, cruel and he rolls his eyes at you when you mess up again and again and again. Instead we're told that he is sympathetic. He's moved with pity, with kindness, with mercy, with grace. We have a sympathetic high priest who faced temptation, who faced pain, pain more unbearable than we'll ever face, even to the point of death. He faced struggling with the Father's will. He faced taunts, persecution. He was a man. He faced temptation. And when we call on our Savior, as we Consider Jesus Christ, especially as we think of it right after the Christmas season, is not with someone who is unable to relate to us, as someone who takes no pity on us and instead is just disgusted that we mess up. It is someone who has sympathy, someone who is moved by pity when he sees that we're but dust. He is moved to have grace and mercy. 
and yet he is sinless. He faced what you faced, and he did it without ever caving into temptation. And that sinlessness provides not only an example for us to imitate, which it does, but it provides the grounds of his obedient work that made him an acceptable and a perfect once-for-all sacrifice, that made him a perfect once-for-all high priest. We have a sinless and a sympathetic Savior. So what are some means when it calls us to calls us to action, calls us to watch, calls us to strive to enter the rest, calls us to take heed. What are some things we can do? One, we can give ourselves to one another in community. Consider Jesus Christ together. Two, we can give ourselves to the Word, considering Jesus Christ as revealed in Scripture. Thirdly, we look at the Savior and we consider Him as both sympathetic and sinless. Finally, we give ourselves to prayer. That is, we consider Jesus and we boldly approach the Father. Look at verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What kind of imagery does that bring up in your mind? The throne of grace. Not judgmental. Yeah. It com- combines those two ideas of, of royalty and power that you're approaching a God who is able and will accomplish all of his purpose. You're requesting a God who is powerful and able to act. And that you don't come quivering and shaking. You come boldly. You come boldly because of Jesus Christ. You come boldly because of his sacrifice. What do you find? You find mercy and grace in time of need. Receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He always provides timely mercy and grace. I think it's interesting because often it doesn't work on the timetable we see fit. (laughs) You know, we have a request and we see a, a, a better option of how God could answer it. But he always offers timely grace and mercy. Perfectly offers it at the perfect time for us. If there's anything I could really encourage you in 2014, I know some people like resolutions, some people don't like them at all. Resolutions are... I don't know what it was for last year, but I did look. I find it interesting to see what the average, like how long people normally keep their resolutions. I think for 2011, like January 9th was the average. So they made it 
just over a week, typically. You know, so it's like five times to the gym. It's over until next January. No sugar until January 9th. Whatever that gets you through, what, 12 chapters of Genesis? <laughs> then, you know, you got to start over next year. Um, we're talking here about perseverance. Considering that you enter the rest, not that you start out on fire and nine days later burn out. And I would encourage you in prayer. Give yourself to prayer. If you're not used to regularly praying, it's going to be awkward and hard and a discipline you have to grow in. But give yourself to prayer. God gives us this means of grace and commands it, calls us to seek him in prayer. Often we just set it aside. It's just something we never get to. It never becomes a priority. I encourage you, make it a priority in your life. You're going to get frustrated when you start and it's going to feel like, you know, sometimes I feel like when I'm praying, it's like I have nothing to say right now. But continue it as a dis- discipline. I know a, a simple message is we've looked at faith and now we're heading into a, a new section of Hebrews. But when, call, when God explains to us through the scripture that our faith is not just simply a, a passive repose, but is an active pursuit, he also gives it with it activities that we can pursue. Community, word, considering our sinless and sympathetic Savior and prayer. All simple ones, but all ones that we can't ignore and look for something else, something that just seems a little fancier. Means of grace that God gives us for persevering in our faith. Let's have a word of prayer. God, we thank you for your kindness, for your goodness to us. Lord, we thank you for your word speaks into our heart and our lives, which is active, which is sharper than any two-edged sword. We thank you for the community of